The nakshatras were the brides of the moon, and like in any marriage, there were problems. There were 27 nakshatras, but the moon spent all his time with just one of them, his favorite, Rohini. Neglected, Rohini's 26 sisters complained to their father, Daksha, who, in turn, gave the moon an ultimatum. Do right by my daughters, or else. Or else what? The moon replied. And so Daksha cursed him. Every day, the moon would get smaller and smaller until he vanished altogether, never to be seen again. The moon begged Daksha to undo this curse, but it was too late. Before long, the moon would be no more. Luckily, the moon found a god who was willing to help. Now, no one could undo Daksha's curse, but it could be modified. The moon would disappear, but only temporarily. After he wasted away and vanished, he would slowly return to his former splendor, only to have that process repeat itself. Relieved, the moon apologized to Daksha, and he promised that he would, thenceforth, spend each night with a different nakshatra. This story tells us a few things. It explains the origins of the phases of the moon. It explains why the moon really does move through a different nakshatra each night. But an underappreciated detail of this story is that the moon's only crime was lust. He put his infatuation with Rohini over his duties to his other wives. You often hear me refer to the moon with feminine pronouns, and this is because a lot of the texts consider her to be female, and you can see why. In a patriarchal world, of course, the sun is male. Is his heat oppressive? Yes, but the sun's light does things. It lights our way and makes the plants grow. The moon, on the other hand, doesn't do much except look pretty, and so, of course, she's read as female. I think the moon is male in the nakshatra story because a male moon makes more immediate sense to us. A man has needs, of course, but a mature man can put those needs to the side for the greater good. Plus, women, am I right? A female moon who only enjoys one-on-one -on -one time with one of her 27 husbands, well, that would mean women have needs too. And we can't have that. Which brings us to the moon in astrology. Like all the other grahas, the moon has a sign of exaltation and a sign of debilitation. You've heard me say there's almost no rhyme or reason behind the exaltation scheme, but I emphasize almost. Consider Saturn. Saturn is exalted in Libra and debilitated in Aries. Why? I believe it was my teacher's teacher's teacher who said that Saturn, since he is the servant, would feel more at home in the marketplace with other servants than he would on the battlefield. And since Libra is the marketplace, Saturn exalts there. And since Aries is the battlefield, Saturn is debilitated there. I can buy that. And that makes me wonder about the moon. The moon exalts in Taurus, the sign of tasteful indulgence. The moon is debilitated in Scorpio, the sign of sex and hedonism. In terms of TV ads from my youth, Taurus is the old man 
in the Rolls Royce who asks in a posh British accent, if you happen to have any gray poupons. Scorpio is the woman from the Herbal Essences commercial who is having the most intense shower of her life. What does it mean that the archetypally feminine moon exalts in the sign of taste and decorum and class? Is she exalted there because that's where she wants to be or because that's where we expect her to be? And what does it mean that she is debilitated in the sign of sex? It's times like this where I think I prefer Western astrology's equivalent term for debilitation, fall. Fall feels more appropriate when thinking about the moon in Scorpio because I don't think the moon's presence in Scorpio makes her weak. I think we consider a moon in Scorpio, and all that Scorpio represents, to be fallen. And I think today's chart shows this more clearly than anyone else's. My name is Charles, and this is Astrosplained, Season 2, Episode 23, The Miley Cyrus Episode, or Parivatna, I Don't Even Noah. I promise I will never use that accent again. Welcome to Astrosplained, where we use Indian astrology to examine the lives of the famous and the infamous. I'm Charles, your friendly, if somewhat regretful, neighborhood astrologer. Why am I regretful, you ask? Because I should have named this episode Astrology in the USA. Oh well, shoulda, coulda, would've. Today we're talking about Miley Cyrus, born November 23rd, 1992, at 4.19 p.m. in Nashville, Tennessee. And before we dive in, I just want to say, because you know, I am a sucker for confluence. Ninth house is the house of the father, as you know. Miley Cyrus has Saturn in her ninth house, in the sign of Capricorn, in the nakshatra of Shravana. Her father, Billy Ray Cyrus, has Saturn in Capricorn in his first house, not in the nakshatra of Shravana. However, her, his ascendant is in the nakshatra of Shravana. I just think that's interesting. So we've done one-on-ones with all the grahas. Uh, the last one we're doing is the moon. And Miley Cyrus's moon is severely afflicted. It is destabilized by Rahu and Ketu. It is in a planetary war with Mercury. It is extremely dark. I mean, Miley was born at the time of a new moon, so there's essentially no moon in the sky when she's born. Not visible, anyhow. Now, all of this, Rahu, the sun, Mercury, all conspiring to cramp the moon style, this is all happening in Miley's seventh house, why is that important? I know that up to now you've pretty much heard me refer to the seventh house exclusively as the house of the spouse, which it is. But beyond that, the seventh house is the house of other people, the undifferentiated other. And so it's interesting to me, one, that her son is there, which makes me wonder the extent to which she sees herself, she, she 
sort of bases her identity in the fact that she is a very public figure. Uh, it's interesting that Rahu is there, aspected by Ketu. Because Rahu and Ketu rule strange things, and I find Miley Cyrus's onstage antics to be very strange. But the star, in my view, of this seventh house show is definitely the moon. Because the moon is the public. And so that we should have this very weak planet representing the public in the house of the undifferentiated other suggests someone who would struggle with fame. Someone who, no matter how much they base their identity in being a public figure, still struggles with being in the public eye. And from what I understand of Miley Cyrus's biography, this is this is true. And I should say here at the outset, you'll be shocked and appalled to learn that I know almost nothing about Miley Cyrus. From what I understand, she has struggled a bit with her fame, transitioning from child star to star. And if the story ended here with this debilitated new moon in a planetary war, destabilized by Rahu and Ketu, I would be I would be concerned. I mean, the moon is the planet of the emotions, along with a lot of other things. And its role as being both significator for the public and the emotions in this very weak state would suggest this is somebody who should not only struggle with fame, but never really resolve her issues with fame and prominence and someone who someone who could very easily go the way of lots of other famous young people that we can name. But what redeems this moon is the fact that the moon is not the only debilitated graha in this chart. No, no. Misery loves company, they say. There is one other planet here that is debilitated, and that planet is Mars. And a funny thing happens when the moon and Mars are debilitated. Because, you see, Mars owns Scorpio, the moon's sign of debilitation, and the moon owns Cancer, Mars's sign of debilitation. And so when they are both debilitated, we get a Parivartana Yoga. And what does that do? It provides some relief for this moon, because it takes the moon temporarily, symbolically, out of the seventh house and puts it in the third house. Now... It is true that in the third house, she is aspected by Saturn, a very strong Saturn. That's not swell. But the great thing about applying a Parivartana is it necessarily puts the two planets involved in their own signs. So that's something. Beyond that, it puts Mars in the seventh house. It brings some of that pugnacious Mars energy into a house that I think would otherwise be very weak. I think it gives Miley Cyrus, this Mars, the resilience that I think it would need to withstand a lot of the bad faith uh, critiques of her onstage antics. And I say this is somebody who really is not a fan of hers at all and who finds a lot of what she does on stage to just be unnecessary. But... I would end my criticism at saying it's unnecessary. Whereas I would 
go much further in my criticism of certain male performers like Enrique Iglesias, whose, this tells you something about how old I am, whose last hit song, at least the last hit song of his that I remember, is entitled, I am loving, radio edit, you. Tonight I am loving you. Now obviously the original title is not loving and it's really creepy to me that we are just comfortable subbing in loving for the F word, but whatever. That sentence, tonight I am effing you, is pretty creepy because at no point is anybody consenting to anything. We're just being told, hey, this person is doing a certain thing to us tonight, like it or not. And to my knowledge, Miley Cyrus has never suggested unwanted uh, sexual contact with anybody. And yet, despite that, a huge chunk of Miley Cyrus's Wikipedia page is all about how people are scandalized by what she does. The twerking and the kissing people and the this and the that. You don't really see much of that at all when you read about that awful Enrique Iglesias song. I, I had to do a lot of digging to find even passing reference to it as being raunchy. And this is what I was trying to get in my introduction, right? I mean, there is something powerful and powerfully sad about the fact that we consider the moon to be debilitated in the sign of sex. And I look at the moon in Miley Cyrus's chart and it, I can't help seeing this young person up against a very unpleasant seventh house, the undifferentiated other, a adoring fan base, yes, but, but beyond her fan base, a very hostile patriarchal culture that, that frowns upon her style of performing. And I'm glad that she's got this Mars tag teaming with her debilitated moon to give her the chutzpah that she needs to not push back perhaps as hard as I'd like to see her push back, but to defend what she said, to defend what she says, to defend what she does, to defend whom she loves, and to keep on partying in the USA. And there you have it. You can email me at astrosplained at gmail.com with any questions you might have about the show or to request episode topics. We are on Twitter and Instagram at astrosplained. And apparently this is like my 50th or 51st episode, which blows my mind. Um, and that's all I have to say about that. I look forward to making another 50 episodes and I hope you look forward to listening to them. Uh, until next time, I'm Charles, your friendly neighborhood astrologer. Thank you for listening to Astrosplained.